Attention, all troops. He's alive. Alive. Welcome to the Rapnolis. After seeing Crocodile Dundee in the theaters with two of my friends. Two things happened. First of all, we were rear-ended on the way home. My sister had picked us up and was driving home and somebody slammed into the back of the car. We were all okay. The second thing that happened was we became obsessed with pretending we were Australian. And when I say pretending, I mean we put on accents to talk to people as if we were Australian. And this would be complete strangers, people we would see at the mall who would just sort of introduce ourselves pretending we were Australian and we thought it was hilarious. Now I'm saying we found it hilarious, because at the time, that's what it seemed like. I should note something about myself. I cannot do accents of any sort. I am originally from New Jersey, and when I try to do a New Jersey accent, it does not sound like a New Jersey accent. It doesn't sound like any accent. It sort of sounds like what a person who is trying to make up an accent for a completely exotic land might sound like. Now, I didn't know this when I was young. My two friends did know this when I was young. Their accent was eh, but they thought it was hilarious that I was doing an accent that everyone could see right through, and yet I was committed to doing it. And I would introduce myself as if I was Crocodile Dundee, and would talk about Australian things. I was young at the time, and people gave me looks, and I thought they were giving me looks because obviously here's some exotic person from Australia. That was not the case. I was some goofy kid from New Jersey who did not sound like he was from anywhere, pretending he was from Australia. I was going to attempt to redeem myself by doing an Australian accent, and I kind of tried to practice all week to do it after watching Crocodile Dundee 1, 2, and 3, and recording myself was not a pretty thing. It turns out that over the years you might get wiser, but I guess unless you have a natural ear for it or some sort of natural talent for it, you do not gain the ability to put on accents, which is a shame because I got lots of stuff to say in an Australian accent, stuff that I just can't pull off in this one. On today's show, we're going to talk about Crocodile Dundee. We're going to talk about all three movies, concentrating mostly on the first one, to many people the best one. And we'll talk about the people behind it, the unofficial inspiration for Crocodile Dundee, and we'll throw in a few surprises here and there. Vic Sage is here with another Why Should I Know This Person. Doug McCoy is back with a brand new installment of Also Ran. And Flack joins us with a brand new Talking Tech. We have an info-packed episode ahead of us, so without further ado, let's start the show. Crocodile Dundee was a 1986 comedy from Australia. 
set in New York City and the Australian Outback. Stars Paul Hogan and Linda Kozlowski. The film is supposed to be inspired by the true life exploits of an Australian named Rodney Ansel. Just to tell you a little bit about Ansel, in the late 70s, he was out on a fishing trip, or so he claims, and somehow managed to get himself lost at sea and made his way back to the mainland and across places that were horrible through crocodile and poisonous snake-infested country until finally he was rescued. He was dubbed a modern-day Robinson Crusoe and even got some national attention. Now, some people say he was out poaching crocodiles or doing something shady. It's hard to know. Things didn't go so well for Ansel in the long run. He seemed to have gotten involved in drugs later on in life and was actually killed in a shootout with police in 1999. While many people say that Ansel is the inspiration for Dundee, Paul Hogan has come out and said that he was not. When he was doing an interview for the most recent Crocodile Dundee film, he claims that the character came just from his own head, him being Australian and having seen people like this his whole life, and that when he visited areas outside of Australia, he felt sort of like Mick Dundee does in the film. Is he saying that for legal reasons? I don't know. But there was this guy, Rodney William Ansell, and he did do things that were similar to what Mick Dundee did in the film. I got him all this attention, and he was followed by reporters after that. Unfortunately, his life did not turn out as well as Crocodile Dundee's life did. So we're going to talk a little bit about the plot of the film. If you've not seen Crocodile Dundee, you should go see it. It's really fun movie, easy to find. It's on TV quite a lot, but if you do not want the whole premise of the film ruined, you might want to pause the show here. Sue Charlton, played by Linda Kozlowski, is a reporter for Newsday. She's divorced, but currently engaged to her editor, Richard, played by Mark Blum. She hears about this guy in Australia, Michael J. Crocodile Dundee, played by Paul Hogan, who did some amazing things, fighting a crocodile and being stuck in the outback. So she travels to Walkabout Creek in the Northern Territories of Australia to meet him and goes on one of his tours. She meets Mick and he's sort of rough around the edges, but he definitely has some interesting skills. In the beginning, he subdues this buffalo that's blocking his path. From what I read, that buffalo was actually drugged to make that happen. He also saves her life, not only from a crocodile, but by killing a snake with his bare hands. She sort of starts to come around to the rough charms of this Mick Dundee. Upon completion of her story there, she invites Mick to return to New York with her, hoping to add something to the story, or perhaps she's just not ready to give up on Mick Dundee yet. When he gets to America, it's a total fish-out-of-water story, and a romance blossoms, but will Sue pick her current boyfriend, or will she pick the gallant, but rough-around-the-edges Mick? In the end, she, of course, picks Mick after he decides to go on something called Walkabout, where he's just going to wander America like Kane from Kung Fu, and probably get into all sorts of adventures, which would have been a great movie in itself. When she finds him, it's at a subway platform, and there's a pretty funny scene where she expresses her love for him, and then Dundee walks on the heads of his fellow New York subway riders to get to her because the crowds are so dense, and you know that everyone in New York, for love, will let you walk on their head. Happens almost every day. I've been there. The film was directed by Peter Feynman. And if that name sounds familiar, it is because I've mentioned him on one other 
show before. He was the director of the film Dutch. Other than that, and some TV work, he's pretty much stuck to producing. But you gotta wonder, if he's got a Crocodile Dundee and a Dutch in him, what can't this guy do? There are actually two versions of Crocodile Dundee, the Australian version and an international version. The Australian version is slightly longer and has a few extra things thrown in, but mostly it's about the language, the inscrutable Australian language that they probably smartly changed so that an international audience would get everything in it. I went out of my way to get the Australian version of it. If I had to choose one, I would take the one I'm familiar with, just because the language is easier for me to understand. Funny thing, the film's called Crocodile Dundee in Australia, without quotation marks around crocodile. But in the international version, they added crocodile in quotes, because they did not want people thinking that the film was about a crocodile. Not a horrible idea for an animated reboot. Today's show is brought to you by your local moving company. If you're moving from the outback to New York City, you're going to need a moving company. So call your moving company. So a little bit about the cast of Crocodile Dundee. In the starring role, you had Paul Hogan playing Mick. Paul Hogan was born in 1939, probably best known as Crocodile Dundee. Was born in New South Wales and grew up right outside of Sydney. Supposedly a real character, worked on the Sydney Harbour Bridge, and then was featured in an interview on the TV show A Current Affair. From there, he went on to launch his own comedy sketch program called The Paul Hogan Show. That show ran for 60 episodes between 1973 and 1984, and was actually broadcast outside of Australia in South Africa and the UK. He also became the spokesperson for Winfield Cigarettes, where he would utter the catchphrase, Anyhow, have a Winfield. In the early 80s, as if predicting that he would become the face of Australia, he actually became the face of Australia with a series of television ads promoting Australian tourism that aired in the United States. And in those, he would famously say the phrase, shrimp on the barbie, as in, let's put another shrimp on the barbie, which I guess means put shrimp on a barbecue, but it sounds so much better when he says it. In 1986, of course, he would launch his most famous international role as Crocodile Dundee. That didn't mean his movie career ended. He would make two more Crocodile Dundees, Crocodile Dundee 2 and Crocodile Dundee in Los Angeles. He would also make some other films, still making them as of recently, two that get some cable play and I happen to see in the theaters were Almost an Angel and Lightning Jack, both of which I can't necessarily recommend, but if you had to pick one, Almost an Angel's not horrible, but it's not great. So if you got to pick one, just rewatch Crocodile Dundee 1 or 2. Linda Kozlowski played Sue Charlton. Born in 1958, she started acting in the early 80s on theater. Starred in Crocodile Dundee as the love interest and would reprise the role in Crocodile Dundee 2 and 3. She would do some sort of straight-to-video stuff and would famously marry Paul Hogan. I guess their chemistry on screen was not fake. I think Hogan went through a pretty messy divorce. John Mellion played Walter Riley. 
probably best known outside of Australia for his role in Crocodile Dundee 1 and 2. Vic will talk a little bit more about him in just a few minutes. David Gulpilil played Neville Bell. He was the aboriginal who they meet while they're out in the bush. Gulpilil's full name is very difficult for me to say, so I'm not going to butcher it. He was born in 1953 and is well known as a traditional indigenous Australian dancer and actor. His first starring role was in a film called Walkabout. Reginald Bell Johnson played Gus, the limo driver. Bell Johnson, best known for Carl Winslow in the sitcom Family Matters and as LAPD Sergeant Al Powell in the Die Hard films. Steve Rackman played Donk, Australian actor, professional wrestler, big guy outside of Australia probably best known as Donk. He appeared in all three of the Crocodile Dundee movies. Jerry Skilton played Nugget, Australian actor, has worked in a lot of movies, not only all three Crocodile Dundee films, but he also has appeared in every Dirty Harry and every Mad Max film, playing different characters each time. Mark Blum played Richard Mason, American actor born in Newark, New Jersey, Probably best known for his work in 80s movies like Desperately Seeking Susan and Crocodile Dundee. Rounding out the cast, you had Terry Gill as Duffy, Peter Turnbull as Trevor, Christina Totus as Rosita, Graham Walker as Angelo, Michael Lombard as Sam Charlton, Anne Carlyle as Gwendolyn, Anne Francine as Fran, Caitlin Clark as Simone, and Alan Dunley as Dingo. Now with a little bit more detail about John Millian, the guy who played Walter. Here's Vic with Why Should I Know This Person. Hey friends, Vic Sage here with another installment of Why Should I Know This Person? And for this week's show, I'm pointing the spotlight on Crocodile Dundee co-star John Millian. Millian was born in Mossman, Sydney, Australia on May 1st, 1934. John began his acting career at age 11 on the Australian Broadcasting Corporation's radio serial, Stumpy. The following year, he made his first appearance on stage, but by the age of 16, he had joined the Shakespeare Touring Company. At 25 years old, he secured his first film role in the classic post-apocalyptic drama On the Beach, which starred Gregory Peck, Ava Gardner, Fred Astaire, and Anthony Perkins. John moved to and worked in London from 1959 until 1965. During that time, he appeared in two notable films, the World War II epic The Longest Day, as well as The Sundowners, co-starring with Peter Ustinov, Deborah Kerr, and Robert Mitchum. He co-starred again with Peter Ustinov in Billy Budd. John made TV appearances throughout his career, but his most famous TV role was quite possibly for the lead, Wally Stiller, in My Name's McGooley, What's Yours? In 1968, Melian won the Australian Film Institute Award for his role in The Fourth Wish. And in 1979, for his many services to the theater, he was made an Officer of the Order of the British Empire, or OBE, in the Queen's Birthday Honors List. And the very next year, he had a bar named after him at the Oaks Pub in Neutral Bay, New South Wales. It was called the John Million OBE Bar. Fitting, as John was most famous, above his theater works and films, for being the narrator for Victoria Bitter. So popular was he, they continued to use his voice 14 years after his death in 1989. This is Vic Sage with Why Should I Know This Person? Until next time, signing off.
The film was a big hit. It grossed $47.7 million in Australia, which is over $100 million in today's money. It was released in September of 86 in the U.S. and would gross $174.8 million at the U.S. box office. And as of now, has grossed over $360 million worldwide. It would also win an award. It won the Golden Globe for Best Actor, Motion Picture, or Comedy for Paul Hogan, and was nominated for another Golden Globe for Best Motion Picture, a Golden Globe Award nomination for Best Supporting Actress, an Academy Award nomination for Best Original Screenplay, and two BAFTA Award nominations, one for Original Screenplay, another for Best Actor. Now with a little information about what was going on in theaters when Crocodile Dundee was out in 1986, here's Doug with a new installment of Also Ran. Hey, I'm Doug, and this is Also Ran. You know what Mick Crocodile Dundee was up against in the wilds of Australia and New York. But do you know what he was up against in the theater? There were fighter pilots, Vulcans, troubled teens, lawyers, and rogue cops, just to name a few. Now, Crocodile Dundee wouldn't get into theaters until September of 1986, so there were lots of movies that got there before him. There was Iron Eagle, Troll, The Clan of the Cave Bear, My Chauffeur, Down Out in Beverly Hills, FX, Wildcats, The Delta Force, The Hitcher, Pretty in Pink, The Care Bears Movie 2, Highlander, Gung Ho, Rad, GoBots, Battle of the Rock Lords, April Fool's Day, Lucas, Critters, Legend, No Retreat, No Surrender, Top Gun, Cobra, Poltergeist 2, Back to School, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, The Manhattan Project, The Karate Kid Part 2, Aliens, Maximum Overdrive, and Friday the 13th Part 6, which I tried to get into and the lady wouldn't let me. Getting a little closer to Crocodile Dundee's debut, we've got Flight of the Navigator and Howard the Duck. Also, Stand By Me, One Crazy Summer, Transformers the Movie, The Fly, Armed and Dangerous, The Boy Who Could Fly, and Shanghai Surprise. Actually, in theaters at the same time as Crocodile Dundee was Blue Velvet, The Name of the Rose, Children of a Lesser God, and Playing for Keeps. Later on that year, we'd see Soul Man, Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home, The Mosquito Coast, Heartbreak Ridge, The Golden Child, and The Three Amigos. So how did Mick do against all that competition? Pretty darn good, mate. He came in second for the year, second only to Top Gun. Yeah, Maverick was able to beat him, but remember, Maverick had a fighter plane. Had it been man-to-man or knife-to-knife, I'm sure Mick would have come out ahead. So I'm Doug, and this has been Also Ran. When you got a huge hit like that, you gotta follow up with a sequel. Crocodile Dundee 2, which flipped the Crocodile Dundee narrative on its head, Starts out in New York, and this time ends in Australia. So you have a fish out of water who turns out he's not really a fish out of water. And then you send him home to the water, and then he just totally rocks everything. The film was directed by John Cornell, who had worked with Paul Hogan on The Paul Hogan Show. 
It was released in 1988 and takes place one year after the things we saw in Crocodile Dundee 1. Paul Hogan and Linda Kozlowski are back. This time, they have to take on a Colombian drug cartel. Sue is doing her writing. Mick is bored doing things like fishing with dynamite in New York Harbor, which everybody thinks is hilarious, and eventually becomes a stationary deliverer for a guy named Leroy Brown, played by Charles S. Dutton. They make a big deal of the song Leroy Brown, which is why this guy chose it, so that he has street cred and he pretends he's not a stationary salesman. It's an odd little twist, but it becomes important later because they need his connections so that Mick could break into the mansion of a drug lord. So this film starts with Sue's ex-husband, who was mentioned but not seen in the first movie, taking photographs of a drug cartel leader who murders somebody. The drug cartel leader is played by Hector Ubari. Those photos are sent to Sue, then he's murdered, and they find out that Sue has them, so they go to New York to get them. There, they kidnap Sue, and it's up to Mick and his buddy Leroy to help. Fun little movie fact. Stephen Root had his first movie role in this. He's the DEA agent who is trailing Mick, and then Mick pulls a knife while he's using a urinal. After Mick loses his DEA tail, he finds out where Sue is. Leroy hooks him up with a gang, and it's one of my favorite parts this gang run by a guy named Rat, who's played by Jace Alexander, who's done some stuff since Crocodile Dundee, mostly directing, is such a stereotype gang. It's one of those gangs that doesn't seem to really do anything gangish. Instead, they just sort of hang out, have parties, and dress weird. Plus, all their outfits are kind of different looking, and it seems like an outsider's view of what gangs were like, which is what makes it so wonderful. The gang helps Mick break into this mansion by causing a lot of noise. At that moment, Colin Quinn, the comedian, shows up in the film for a small cameo. From what I heard in an interview once with Colin Quinn, I think he got the role and then actually tried to rewrite Crocodile Dundee 2 at the time. I don't know if that's just Colin Quinn making up a story, but I've tried looking online for his version of the script, and I would love to read what he had come up with to change it. Mick rescues Sue gets her out, decides that they are not safe in America, instead goes back to Australia with Sue to protect her. The drug dealers follow them back. Mick plays games with them, finally culminating in this weird who shot who, is Mick alive? And then at the end, you get the smiling freeze frame of Mick victorious. While the first Crocodile Dundee was very well received with both critics and at the box office, critics did not love Crocodile Dundee 2 but it did do very well in the theaters. It was the sixth highest grossing film of the year in the U.S. and worldwide would earn $240 million. So years pass and we don't get another Crocodile Dundee. And then for some reason in 2001, they decide to make a third Crocodile Dundee in Los Angeles. I was kind of excited at the time to see it. I went to see it in the theater. It's not a great film. I rewatched it recently and I smiled at some of the things in it, mainly just Mick being Mick, but the plot is convoluted. It involves Mick and their son and another crocodile wrestler because crocodile hunting is illegal. Everybody expects you to be a crocodile man wrestling crocodiles. Sue gets an opportunity to come back to the U.S., and the whole family moves back. But instead of going to New York, they go to California, hence Crocodile Dundee in Los Angeles. 
Now, the plot's not too difficult to understand. The problem is it's kind of chaotic and just not that enjoyable. And I'm not the only one who thought that very poorly rated. It was nominated for a Razzie Award that year for Worst Remake and Sequel, and most importantly, the box office suffered. The film only grossed $39 million worldwide, which is a fraction of what the other films earned. This despite it opening in fourth place at the U.S. box office. I think if they had focused, like they did in the first two films, on just Dundee and his relationship with Sue, the film would have had more of the focus it needed and might have been a better film. Here's what I want. Crocodile Dundee cleverly smiling and defeating the bad guy in the end. Now with a look at how the boomerang works, is Flack with another installment of Talking Tech. Greetings and salutations, listeners. This is Flack with another installment of Talking Tech. In today's segment, I'm going to talk about boomerangs. When most people hear the word boomerang, they think of a curved stick that comes back when you throw it. Technically speaking, there are three different kinds of boomerangs, and the ones that come back are only one kind. There are also boomerangs that were not intended to be thrown at all, and were used in hand-to-hand combat, and hunting boomerangs, which were not designed to return. Now, back when I was a kid, we called those sticks, but I suppose that's just a matter of semantics. In popular culture, boomerangs are most commonly associated with Australia, and while boomerangs more than 10,000 years old have been found there, they were not limited to that continent. In the Carpathian Mountains of Poland, a boomerang over 30,000 years old and carved out of a mammoth's tusk was discovered. Other boomerangs carved by Native Americans hundreds of years ago have been discovered right here in America. The boomerangs most people are familiar with, the returning style, consists of two or more wings designed to give both lift and cause the boomerang, at least when thrown correctly, to fall in a spiral pattern. Because the blade rotating forward is technically moving faster than the opposite blade, which is moving backwards, this causes the boomerang to fly in a slightly circular pattern. Now, in the late 1970s, a company named Wintenna created and copyrighted the boomerang antenna. You may have seen these on the backs of limousines. The dual-wing shape of these antenna allow them to pick up multiple radio frequencies. Wintenna is still in business today and still selling their patented antennas. Now, near the end of Crocodile Dundee, while warding off a gang of New York pimps, Dundee's limo driver Gus grabs the boomerang-shaped antenna off the trunk of his limo and hurls it at a fleeing pimp, knocking him out. After it bounces off his head, the boomerang hits the ground with a metallic clanking sound effect. If you're ever planning on warding off a gang attack of pimps using a boomerang-shaped antenna, I'm afraid to tell you that I believe some movie magic may have been involved while filming this scene. First of all, the wings of a boomerang antenna are not shaped like airfoils, so it is very unlikely to fly accurately, and it certainly won't arc the way the antenna in the movie did when thrown. And secondly, according to Wintenna's website, all boomerang antennas are made of ABS plastic rather than metal. Good luck knocking a New York pimp down with one of those. This has been Flack with another installment of Talking Tech. Thanks, Flack. The knife in Crocodile Dundee, tried looking for it online, were custom-made just for this movie. There have been some attempts at making copies of the knife, and if you do a search online, you can find some. And although I'm no knife expert, I've been reading what other people have said. These copies are not as screen accurate as people would like them to be, but you can get pretty close and at least enjoy the spirit 
of the original gigantic knife if you want to haul that around. Crocodile Dundee, the original, is a great movie. A lot of charm. It's important enough in Australia that it was selected for preservation as part of the National Film and Sound Archive of Australia's Kodak Cinema Collection Restoration Project. So it's good to know that the original film will be restored and kept in a safe place. A lot of people do not love Crocodile Dundee 2. I'm in the minority. I really love it. I watch it probably more than once a year because I'll watch it on DVD and I will also watch it if it's just on and it is on often. I find it so much more ludicrous than the original. The drug dealers, that gang, the whole going back to Australia and Mick playing this weird game. Plus, turns out Mick is like a millionaire from a gold mine. It's just over the top taking Crocodile Dundee to the next level. Which is why Crocodile Dundee in Los Angeles was so disappointing to me. Here I wanted this character to bring the fun again, and he just doesn't. So while Crocodile Dundee might be a trilogy, I like to think of it as trilogy in name alone, and I tend to only watch one and two when they're available, and I own both of them, so they're available quite often. There was a love affair in the 80s in America with Australian culture. Our commercials had Australian stuff in it. Some other Australian movies managed to float over to the U.S. The love affair was short, but the face of it to me, at least, was Paul Hogan. And despite other movies that he might do that I might not love, I still find that the things that he decides to be in, he brings a certain charm to it. And it's not hard to see why this easygoing actor is so popular. So this weekend, if you're bored, have nothing to do, want to watch a good movie, why don't you fire up Crocodile Dundee? Or, if you want a real treat, put on Crocodile Dundee 2. Now I know what you're saying. I don't like Crocodile Dundee 2. Look at it with fresh eyes. Don't compare it to part one. Just look at it for what it is. It is silly and over the top. If you thought that Paul Hogan was charming in the first one, in that first one, he had an okay script to work from. In the second one, the script is crazy. So it's just all him carrying the movie. It'll make you appreciate it more. Maybe that's just me. Never smile at a crocodile. No, you can't get friendly with a crocodile. Don't be taken in by his welcome grin. He's a man. Thanks for listening to the show. For more retro fun, you can drop by the website at www.retroist.com. You can follow me on Facebook and Twitter. I'm at facebook.com slash retroist.com and twitter.com slash retroist. Thanks to Vic Sage for another great installment of Why Should I Know This Person? You can find Vic Sage's posts at The Retroist on a regular basis. If you want to contact him, you can email him at vicsage at retroist.com. Thanks to Doug McCoy for another great installment of Also Ran. You can find more information about Doug McCoy on The Retroist or at his website, authordougmccoy.com. If you want to contact Doug, you can email him at mccoy at retroist.com. Thanks to Rob O'Hara, who writes on The Retroist website as Flack. You can find more information about Flack at his own website, robohara.com, or of course at The Retroist. Thanks for listening to the show, and I hope you have a great weekend. Within his skin, never smile at a crocodile. Never tip your hat, stop to talk a while. Don't be rude, never mock. Throw a kiss, not a rock. Clear the aisle and never smile at Mr. Crocodile. Thank <laughs> you.
crocodile. Never dip your hat and stop to talk a while. Don't be rude, never mock. Throw a kiss, not a rock. Clear the aisle and never smile at Mr. Crocodile. G'day, friends. Vic Sage here with another installment. Beep boop, bop boop, beep. This has been a retrospective production. Goodbye.